Welcome to the Heavy Metal Strength Coach Podcast. Hi guys, I am the Heavy Metal Strength Coach and it brings me great pleasure to announce Paul Swenson will be joining us today. Hi, Paul. Uh, hello, Chris. Now, Paul has over 15 years experience in the industry. He has been personal trainer, personal training manager, a consultant, an educator, a writer, and a presenter. And from his work that I've seen and I've personal experience with, he is aiming to basically improve the fitness industry, the standards, the abilities of the personal trainers that are coming through um, the academy and uh, his company and the company he works with, Future Fit Training, and is the head of research and development at that company. Paul, have I got that about right? Uh, more or less, I think my official title is Research and Development Lead, but it's, uh, it's the same thing, yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, Paul, how did you, to work through your various um, professions and the, the numerous hats that you wear in the industry, how did you initially get started? as a personal trainer and indeed did it start as personal training before it developed into other areas my kind of if you like passion for the industry started at university many many years ago so we're talking early 2000s i was into health and fitness generally i was in the the rowing team at university um and decided potential to make a career out of out of it then i, I would go down that route so uh, i got my qualifications say early, early 2000s um and my first role in the industry was, was as, a, as a gym instructor i i kind of found out much like many people do that uh, when you apply for jobs as a as a personal trainer straight off the bat or back then anyway it wasn't quite as uh, straightforward lots of people wanted experience or they wanted higher levels of qualifications than I had at the time so I kind of uh, lowered my sights a little bit and went for a, a gym instructor uh, position but took the view that I would be a, a well-qualified gym instructor especially with my, my degree behind me as well that was my, my first role in the industry was as a, a gym instructor at a facility up in, uh, in York. And then how did things progress from there did you get clients straight away or did you have an initial struggle that you had to get over that maybe helped you later on when you became an educator? Well towards the end of my my time as a gym instructor um, I was I was offered the opportunity to, to, to do some personal training with a, a client that, that had joined the gym um, so she became my, my first official PT client if you like um, and that sort of gave me the real the bug to, to take it a bit further so um, I went to work as a bigger commercial chain and became a, self, a fully self-employed PT at that point and again like many like tra- trainers I started off not knowing entirely what to do I, I didn't really have that much business uh, acumen at the time um, so it was literally kind of trial and error um, out on the gym floor um, I remember signing up my first client on my first my first day which was a you know, massive achievement to me it was like a, I think I sold one session to one client so I was very proud of myself at that point uh, and then from there you can just have to learn, learn the ropes as, as I went and it was I remember it being a good sort of four to six months before I felt like I was what you might call steady and you know, not fully booked necessarily but uh, you're know, earning a reasonable income doing a good number of sessions um, which seems like a lot a long time to some people but, but back, say, back, back in the day and there was uh, you were finding things out as you went went along and kind of learning as you go then it's uh, I didn't do too badly but I never never once thought this isn't going to work I think that's a key thing I didn't think to myself this is really hard work it's you know it's, it's a disaster I need to kind of look at a different career I just remember thinking it was this is part of it it's gonna it's not easy uh, and I'm stuck at it eventually eventually got there how long did it take you for the business to be profitable 
Oh, that's a good question. It was, it was, to be honest, it was, it was profitable from the first couple of months because I, I didn't have that many outgoings at the time. I was, uh, I was living on my own. It was, and I'd say I was, I was signing up clients from my first week. So I was generating income, um, and because of the business model that this particular chain had. Um, there was a kind of like a, a rental deferment of the first six weeks or so. So by the time I came to be paying my gym rent um, and, and my expenditure increased, I was already earning. So I, I'd say I was I was never kind of that far in the red. So within a couple of months, I was earning a bit of money. Um, but until to get to the point, as I say, where I was, I felt like I was earning an income and I could live off the income completely. Uh, so it was, it was a, good, a good six months. And when you first went to that gym, uh, I know it's a while back now. Were there other more experienced personal trainers that weren't signing up people like you? And if so, uh, what do you think made people sign up with you um, rather than going with a more experienced trainer rather than someone that's just coming right out of the gates? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. The, there was a, a large number of trainers that sort of came and went um, in my time there, uh, this, this first gym I worked at. But there was one or two that had been there for a long time before me um, and, and continued to just stay there as well and I didn't really see it as sort of competition to be honest because they were they had their particular market they had their clients that went with them uh, and I kind of looked after a different set of people so it was never a case of sort of competing with with them to get more clients as for why they chose me I guess it was my my, my shining personality obviously <laughs> um, I'd like to think it was it was just the expertise I brought to the, brought to the table so again I, I got a degree in psychology so it wasn't just about training and, and nutrition it was it also about the mindset and the heavy change aspects which was was critical is critical perhaps more so um, than we even realized back uh, back then so you know talking 15 years ago the psychology side of it wasn't there wasn't that much emphasis on it whereas i knew that it was a, it was a key part so i kind of the, the success and the, the results i was getting with my clients was largely due to the behavior change work that i was doing with them uh, as much as you know the exercise side so i think when people started to see that they, they were kind of wondering what the you know, what, what the secret ingredient was if you like to, to my client's success and um, so i was able to, to share that with them and did you have a particular speciality or a niche always um it's more just general population and working with people who you could just help. Over the course of my PT career, I'd, I'd say I developed that niche into working with people and generally between the ages of 35 and 55 that wanted that wanted fat loss uh, and doing that in a, eventually doing that in a community-based system or, or home training system. So I used to visit visit clients in their homes eventually um, when I moved out of the gym. And it, would, it tended to be, I'm going to say, wealthier individuals in the main, so to kind of business owners and uh, executives. Um, so that, that, but I kind of fell into that niche and um, just through word of mouth. So I had a couple of clients in, in that in that area or in that, in that market. And then through referrals, they introduced me more and more people to the point where that my entire client base was from that from that niche if you like so that sort of developed over time when I first started I very much was right anyone and anybody could be a client I could try and help everyone I tried to be that jack of all trades and that that very quickly didn't work and um, because I wasn't seen as an expert in, in what I did and um, I, I remember kind of giving out flyers where I'd list all these different ex, ex, areas of expertise and all these different types of things I could help you with I wondered why you know, why I was not getting any business why I, I can help everyone why is nobody coming to me and I, then I sort of very quickly realized it's because I was trying to help everyone and, and you can't really do that really. So as soon as I started to kind of narrow that down, found myself getting more and more success and, and attracting more business because people wanted to work with me because I'd worked with people like them to achieve a similar goal before. And um, so it's, that's, that's how, how it developed over time. And that's now the kind of the, the mantra, if you like, that I pass on to other trainers is that, yes, it's fine to kind of generalize to start with, but 
if you can specialize and pick a particular niche, you've got a greater, greater chance of being positioned as, as the expert and people will be more attracted to you that way. Yeah, I mean, with um, some of the PTs that I uh, mentor and PTs that I've worked with and reading through their personal training bios, it always, yeah, it gets on my nerves a little bit when it says like 38 specialities that they have. And I think when people read those bios, uh, it's something that they won't believe. People don't believe that you can specialize in that many areas and just can no. help everyone. So I think I always tell the personal trainers that I work with that they need to really hone in on those couple of areas and they can be quite vague still and um, that they can really help people and people tend to engage a lot more with that and I found that quite quickly with my career as well. Yeah definitely I think the the the, the fear I think for a lot of trainers particularly when they're starting out is that if they narrow that niche down and if they start talking about the fact that they only offer two or three services or they only work with a specific type of person that they're then alienating everybody else and excluding everybody else but they kind of you I kind of I liken it to going fishing but the, you know the, the wider you cast your nets and the bigger the holes are in that net to make the net bigger are you going to catch any fish whereas if you've got a much smaller net with smaller holes yes maybe the kind of the the big mass of uh, fish that you potentially catch is less but you are going to catch them and that's the kind of analogy I try to use PC yeah. clients if you become an expert we will attract people um, and you only need to be busy with a certain number of people. Um, you, you can't you can't help thousands of people unless you've got an online trainer. Um, you can't do that in, in practice. So it's uh, I think it's a it's a better strategy definitely. When was it that you started to manage other personal trainers? Um, so I, I spent a year or two managing some PTs quite relatively late on, I guess. So after I've been personal training for probably about seven eight years, and I've, I was I was tutoring and, and educating by this point as well. Um, I was given an opportunity to to, to manage some uh, manage and recruit some personal trainers for a particular uh, firm or particular brand um, and I'll be honest that it was it was quite challenging so, so for all the reasons we've just been talking about or some of those reasons in terms of business acumen and, and uh, encouraging trainers to see how what a, a more effective way of marketing themselves is and attracting clients getting those messages across was actually quite difficult and mm-hmm. um, particularly when you've got a trainer that's that's you've recruited they've started working in, in their facility and literally from the word go they're kind of constantly chasing their tail trying to find those clients whilst you're trying to educate and train them and coach them to improve their, their business and marketing skills so it was quite quite challenging the, the first couple of trainers I took on they did really well I, I don't just don't remember my, my first my first ever recruit if you like was a, a, a goal an older guy in his 50s and I say older just in terms of the uh, in comparison to the majority of trainers coming into the industry yeah so yeah this guy um he finished his first week I remember him ringing me saying Paul um brought up I've generated a thousand pounds in income this week uh, is that good or not and I remember <laughs> thinking for your first week that's not that's not bad that's, that's pretty, pretty good going so and, and that's uh, you know that was that was reassuring but then yeah, to balance that there was plenty of traders that would say oh, I'm really struggling I can't find the clients you know nobody wants to buy from me they would use the sale oh, there's not there's not enough business there's not enough clients and of course there's thousands of clients it's just to get your message across um, but yeah it was hard work and it was actually that management role that led me to refocus where I wanted to go career-wise because I realized there was a definite gap between the the knowledge the trainers had and then what they needed um, when they when they started their business so I realized that the the education process needs to start much much earlier and they need to be getting much more uh, much more skills and knowledge uh, particularly around business and also behavior change into their skill sets and into their repertoire before they begin their businesses and before they go in out there into into the industry so that's where I sort of plowed more of my interest back into working with future fit uh, and looking at the education and the courses and the training that we develop to make it much more fit for purpose. Do you think there's any um, common big business mistakes that PTs just coming out of the academy or just getting qualified 
will make when they first start that they can easily correct. How long have we got for this uh, this talk again? You take as long as you want. <laughs> I don't want to sort of paint a sort of a gloomy picture, but there's almost sort of too many to list. Um, and it's not that every trainer makes or every single mistake, but there's there's no single one i don't think that is a, is a magic bullet that we could fix that that we would you know it would solve the issues that we see in kind of in terms of trainers that aren't able to sustain successful business i think one of the key ones is is seeing that it is a long-term um, a long-term issue so, and just an appreciation that business acumen is as important uh, if not more so initially as the training aspect so when you're running a, a pt business yes training yes exercise yes nutrition lifestyle management all of that is, is great and it's key it's the fundamental tools of the trade but you need to have that business mindset and you need to think how am i going to uh, influence this person in front of me to pay me money literally as you know as cold as that sounds mm-hmm. to in order to help them achieve their goals um, and i think that's perhaps one of the one of the kind of the, the mistakes that we make as an industry generally is that we, we come into it with lots of passion and enthusiasm about helping people achieve their goals but we're all reticent about having to ask people for money and having to think about sales almost it's almost a dirty word for a lot of people yeah. and that's and that's obviously is a big a big downfall because the majority of pt positions are still self-employed there are some employed ones which is great they are still majority self-employed so you have to have that that business mindset in order to to be successful uh, as for other ones obviously we've talked about generalization versus specialization i think that's that's a key one uh, another one one other that does spring to mind actually that's quite key is starting with the end in mind which is a um leads to stephen covey uh, one of the seven habits and not falling into the trap of working with every type of client at any particular time um, certainly one that I felt fell into initially a client would say can I do a session at 7am in the morning yeah that's yep, no that's problem can I do one at 10am yeah that's fine 2pm yeah of course yeah 8pm or yeah go on then and before you know it you're working 7 in the morning till 8 9 at night seven days a week um, and then you kind of think well, what's the point in earning all this money I've got no time to spend it so kind of starting with the end of mind what type of business do you want what hours do you want to work where do you want to work planning that out initially I think it's quite a key thing as well yeah I remember when I uh, first got qualified and was working in, um, in a very big budget gym I'd been there a few weeks and I'd fallen into that very trap I, th- I had something I had something stupid like 12 to 13 sessions that day and I tried to get like every single per, um, person booked in and I got three sessions in I had a half hour break and I just uh, went to the staff room and just completely broke down because I'd been working every single day I got this idea in my head that that gym needed to be so people needed to associate that gym with me so that I needed to be there all the time in order to make this work it just resulted in me just completely breaking down and um, so I had to start to work in rest days and recovery days and days to work on me because I think people initially throw themselves in so hard and they burn out so quickly um, and they don't know how to cope in that first year that I think that's why percentage of personal trainers that drop after the drop off after the first year is is just so high uh, and I'd be very yeah. interested and you might know um, something about this whether that percentage is starting to drop down now of PTs dropping off after the first year or whether um, it is still a very high number. Um, I don't actually have any specific stats. It is something that we, kind of, we, we want to look at um, at FutureFit in terms of tracking our, our graduate 
um, information much more closely. So, you know, looking at where people are after a year, five years, 10 years, et cetera. Um, so I think that'll be, you know, really, really interesting. But yeah, I don't actually have any specific stats on it. I'd like to think to, that it is changing, particularly because we're, we're aware of the gaps in skills and knowledge now. We're embedding those into training qualifications. They're being put into standards. So it's becoming more and more essential that qualifications courses have these, this kind of content in it. Uh, or in them so i'd like to see, see that there will be a change but i think that you know the proof will be in the pudding really and um, when we start to see, sort of see the general feedback from the industry and um, we kind of look at the kind of the, the culture that we have um as, as a sector hopefully the narrative will start start to shift and we won't place so much focus on it and it won't be such a common conversation to talk about how many trainers aren't, aren't leaving but you just to, to wrap up on your point about the the all spending all, all hours under the sun in, in the gym for so many people it's they would see it as a problem that's nice to have because a lot of them kind of are spending a lot of time in the gym but they're, they're trying to find clients not actually servicing them with with pt sessions so whilst i think it is good to be in the gym show your face and become associated with it you, you're right that you don't want to go to the other end of the spectrum where you think you're being successful by running loads of sessions but actually you're going to burn out and there's no way you can deliver the same quality of service to client number 13 as you to client number one and that's that's not doing anybody any favors so i think yeah definitely limiting limiting yourself is, is a better a better course of action yeah and they end up spending that much time in the business that they can't actually spend any time working on the business so it just mm. ends up definitely. spinning the wheels and i think learning to navigate that is so so important that that's that should have been one of my key things that when you said to over uh, the, the key business mistakes is giving time to work on the business not in the business so yeah yeah i should have had that one uh, it, was, it was the words that you were saying that, that definitely brought that to my head i wasn't thinking that okay, will paul give this answer that it was definitely you that put me onto that today yeah um i think my last one um, on that point will be just when people came out of the academy when I um, qualified years and yeah, a decade ago, um, I just expected clients to come to me. And then when I went in a self-employed position and it was just like, right, off you go. That was the gym that I worked in, not the company that I trained with. Mm. Um, it was very much like, right, I'm going to actually have to go and speak to people. And it was such a shock at the time that there wouldn't be just sending loads of clients my way. And that, that, that transition was huge. So I, I believe FutureFit will definitely prepare people for that now that they will actually have to take an active role in finding clients and they're not just going to fall into people's laps because it's not in the gym's interest to give them clients as long as they're paying them rent. No, I know, which, 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 is really, which is really sad. And it's, yeah, you know, it, is a, it is a model that's it's been around for a long time now. Um, I, I, when I first started, it was, that model was just kind of kicking in in the industry. Um, the gym chains decided to stop employing instructors and start recruiting self-employed trainers. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's been one of my sort of drums that I've been banging for a long time, as, as feature we have, is that gyms really need to see personal trainers not as revenue, a revenue source, but actually a, a, a retention source for their members. So the more more members that you can retain, obviously the better the bottom line is for the gym. And PTs have got a huge role to play in that because yeah. if their clients get results, they're enjoying their experience, if they they want to be in the gym, they're obviously they're going to stay. Um, so that yeah, you're completely right. That that's 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 what the focus should should really be on, and and yeah, making making trainers aware that it's unfortunately that that is the situation. You are responsible for generating your own client base. They're not just gonna people aren't just gonna ring uh, ring your phone left, right, and centre and drop you messages through Facebook, desperate to train with you all the time. As nice as that would be, and um, it's it's not the reality. So it's uh, again, that's why you need to focus on that the marketing aspect, get your message out there so that people know who you are and want to work with you. And if Jim's started to listen to companies like FutureFit saying that 
PTs are an essential part of um, memberships uh, retention and having a great atmosphere on the gym floor and those kind um, of I think I think somehow some have definitely seen the value in in, in training for their staff. Um, we've you know, we had some good success stories with a few a few places that have shown that one, once they can invest in their staff and, and upskill their staff, um, the impact on their on their members is huge, and then the impact then on their on their on their business as a whole. Um, is, is massive so I know it's, it sounds like a, a cliche but it's the it's the old Richard Branson um, phrase which I can, if I can get it right is that you you want to train your staff um, so well that they're good enough to leave um, but treat them well enough that they want to stay um, and that's, I think that's over um, so to say that's that's a I think a really sort of powerful message that you want you want to invest in your staff I'm just getting a flashback to when I was um, just training to be a personal trainer and you were one of the, I think you were an assessing, I think you were assessing the person that was taking our course or maybe you were leading it, I'm not sure. Right. Anyway, okay. um, yeah. but you recommended, and I think you were reading Richard Branson's book. Right when we were doing that course and i remember you re um, recommending it at the time oh well, there you go <laughs> yeah, no, also a good, good, good memory yeah. <laughs> well, i've well, not remembered that until right when you said that <laughs> well, just, just all flashing back once you'd spent time um as a pt how long was it before you started to go into the education side of things but it was actually relatively relatively quick for me um so i, I I was about, I think it was about three, four years having worked in the industry that an opportunity came up with, with FutureFit. And I, I knew that going down an education route would, would be where I wanted to go. Um, I thought I had, you know, had something to offer, as it were. So uh, I applied and was fortunate enough to, to get the job. And I, I sort of realised that I was potentially quite well suited to it in, in the interview. And so I remember in the interview... Um, and there is a point to this story. Um, I remember in the interview, there was about five or six of us um, and we were asked to present. So we were basically asked to demonstrate our tutoring abilities, which is fair enough. Uh, and I remember every other person, so the other five people that were being interviewed, all of them got up and had um, cards written out and they literally kind of read their lines off the card almost. Whereas I, I'd put together a, a presentation. This is how long ago it was. I had um, uh, acetates on an overhead projector. That's how long ago this was. Um, and I did a full kind of presentation that I'd rehearsed and, and you know, practiced for, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I was, I was, I was felt like at that point that I, I must be doing something right because I think I thought they came across a bit better than else and a bit more polished and professional. Uh, and they recognized that and, and, and took me on. But what's interesting now is looking back now, because I see myself as primarily an educator, I've realised how important that, that skill of presenting is, um, both as, a, as an educator and as a PT. Um, it's about communicating your message effectively so that people really engage with it. So that's, that was uh, yeah, the first point or the first step in my journey towards, towards doing that. And I think you hit upon a really cool concept there, um, and that applies to why I think FutureFit is such a good company i think other educational providers would be less stringent in their interview process and wouldn't put them on the spot quite like that so i see you've got the qualification when can you start and it also applies to when um you guys are assessing pts and gym instructors instructors sorry because when i was doing my gym instructor exam my practical one i was so nervous and i didn't do it well enough and i actually failed uh, that first time and then the second time I went down to Manchester, there was a massive power cut and then we rearranged it again. So I practiced <laughs> more and then did it uh, on that third time. And I just don't think 
many education providers would do that. Um, is that been something that FutureFit have always tried to do to have an excellent standard and to actually fail people if yeah. they don't match that standard? Yeah, completely. That's, I mean, that are kind of one of our big campaigns is, is raising the bar of, of, of education and, and standards of education within the industry because yeah, the, it serves everybody much better if you've got a, a higher quality and a higher standard of trainer, then that stands them in better stead for developing a successful business. It helps clients because you've got a better quality of service. It helps operators and gyms because they get better staff, um, which means better retention. So it's, it's, it's better all around. Um, but completely, I mean, there is, there is always a pressure on a private training provider like ourselves where you've got people who are paying, um, let's be honest, they're paying a lot of money for, for a quality product, but because they are paying, there is, there's obviously a conflict there that well, if they've paid, can we realistically fail them? And say right, no, you can't. You can't have what you paid for because because we don't you know, we don't want to give it to you. But we'd be doing them a disservice by saying, well, you paid your money, so yeah, here's your certificate and off you go. So we're quite proud of the fact we don't have a 100% pass rate. And um, so we uh, figures will will vary. Um, but we have around about an 80% pass rate, for example, first time pass rate for our PT students. So they they we only want to make sure they we want to make sure they're, they're ready for the industry um, and we won't let them go out there and fall into these potential traps with uh, when they're unprepared so we want to make sure they, you know, they, they are ready so we are prepared to fail people we use the word refer because fail sounds a bit negative but we, we, we refer people um, and make sure they kind of they, they come back stronger and as you're you know case in point there um, you came back and took on board the feedback from the first time and came back and, and did a, a great job second time or third time as it might be but yeah that, I think that actually helps people. We work and say that to people that sometimes if you don't pass the first time, it's a positive thing because you're going to get even more feedback and you'll get a recent, you know, some really thorough training and preparation for the next time so you can do it even better. Uh, and that stands you in good stead then. Yeah, I, I think if I had passed that first time, I knew that I didn't do well. I knew that I was so nervous and was, was stuttering all my words and I, I tried to prepare, but like, for example, the... I was having to demonstrate some stretches at the time and the person was very clearly doing it wrong and I didn't really know how to correct them. And if I'd have gone through that and passed, I would have had no confidence in my ability as a personal trainer to then make sales, to, to then charge money for my services because you don't feel like you've earned it. And mm. I feel like it is so, so important to maintain those high standards. Uh, how do Future Fit deal with the fact that there's shorter and shorter courses coming out promising more and more for less and less money? Is it a case of just sticking to your guns and being apart from everything else and being apart from the trend? Or do you have to kind of take little bits from that and then um, just do it better? The only bit we've taken from it is that we need to, so you're sticking to our guns. So we, we know that we can't join the race to the bottom. So the phrase that I quite like is that in our industry, very often the tail wags the dog. And so just because the consumers and the potential customers are saying, we want this cheaper, we want it faster, doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Um, and particularly for all the reasons we've talked about, if, you know, if, if people are struggling to sustain a successful business, then the answer to that isn't to make things, make the training quicker and, and shorter and cheaper and all the rest of it. So, so we, we very much stick to our guns. We make sure that students are going to learn over time. They can't do fast track courses. We have a blended learning approach. You get online study with practical workshops and practical time is a, is a key thing for us, particularly at the moment where we're seeing some providers that are trying to shift all of their delivery and provision 100% online because of the lockdown restrictions during the, the pandemic. Um, we've heavily resisted that. So obviously nobody can, as the time of 
discussing this right now, gyms aren't, aren't yet open, hopefully will be soon. So we can't run any practical workshops, but rather than say, well, we'll shift our entire business online, we're making plans for when we do go back, how can we adapt that and still keep a practical element because we think it's really, really important. Um, so yes, it, it has been challenging. It does, it does mean that it is a barrier for us when we kind of speak to potential, potential students because they'll say, well, I can do it down the road here for four weeks and be, and be done for 99p, whatever it is they're, they're paying. Um, so it is a bigger challenge for us, but then we just have to refer them back to why we're more expensive, why we take longer, what our ethos is, what our values are, um, and then look at the students that have come through us. And you know, there's a reason why we've trained 40,000 students over the last 25 years and why we've lasted for 25 years as well. That's what we, that's what we come back to, really. Um, you know, we're, we've been around for a long time. We're not going anywhere um, because we, we believe what we're doing is the right way to do it. For any coaches or trainers out there that are looking to get into educating other personal trainers, what do you think makes a good educator in the fitness field? And is it the same as what makes a good coach? In a sense, yes. Um, I would say we have to be careful not to, there's, there's a kind of a, an analogy here with or, or a similarity with the e-myth that I quite like. Um, so just to kind of go off track a little bit. So the, the e-myth talks about the fact that when you are good at a particular job, doesn't necessarily mean that you can run a business um, that's related to that job. Um, so it's the same, in the same, reason, same way that personal trainers, if you're good at personal training, doesn't necessarily mean you can automatically run a personal training business because they're two different things. Similar with education. So just because you're a good personal trainer doesn't automatically mean you're going to be a good PT educator. But a lot of the skills obviously are transferable. Talking about things like presentation, communication, they are really, really, really important. And ultimately, it's about helping somebody from get from A to B, whether that's helping somebody to lose a certain amount of weight or run a marathon versus starting here and then qualifying to be a personal trainer and run their own business and you're supporting in that journey. So there are lots of lots of similarities. So co yeah, coaching skills are definitely definitely really key um i think i say presentation skills are really really important so being able to get your message across verbally in written form um, however it might may be and um, to accommodate different learning styles we know that personal trainers fitness professionals in general we're very active kinesthetic people we like we like to do stuff we don't sort of like to sit and read or sit and watch stuff even or i do but that's just me so but not everyone does so we need to think of ways to bring the information and material to life. And I think that's, that's a key one as well. So it's very different knowing a concept, knowing a principle, and then being able to convey it effectively so that somebody else can learn it. So that's, that's, a, that's the fundamental role of an educator. Um, and it's a, it's a skill in itself. And then how long into your career did you begin to dabble with writing and how did that begin to progress? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, actually. I started started writing probably, when was it? Actually, I remember it was actually from the, my first position as a gym instructor um, because we, we started to, to designing and delivering a, a newsletter for our, for our members at the gym. Uh, and I was asked to write a couple of very short articles for that. And so I, I did that. I remember submitting a, an answer to a question in the Times um, years and years ago. I, I remember it now. It was, um, are ab cradles any good? So you can imagine what my response was. So I, I uh, did a little, I did a, a full piece on that. But then for the, probably had a little bit of a break after that. I did a little bit here and there writing for sort of local magazines whilst I was a PT. But it was only when I got into the education and tutoring side of it where there was obviously a big opportunity there because what we do is education and, and writing is a big part of it so i started writing for our website i started writing some of our course material and then from that obviously got the opportunities to start writing for websites national publications doing a lot more presenting work as well so that that's kind of how sort of naturally fell into it but because i enjoyed doing it like kind of i wanted to pursue it more interestingly 
when I take myself back to being when I was about 13, 14, doing a, a careers talk at school with the, uh, the careers advisor. I remember at that point um, telling them that I wanted to be a journalist and because I enjoyed writing. And they told me how hard it was to become a journalist, very competitive world. And I, you know, I, should, I should probably look at doing something else. So, yeah, it's in, in, ironically many years later that I ended up doing quite a lot of writing. I think uh, a lot of people that get into writing have been told that they shouldn't at the start. Yeah. They're very much driven by the fact that other people have told them that they maybe shouldn't do it. You can't do it, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and has your writing process changed much over the years um, and how have you refined it if you have? Um, So I've never had any formal training, although that said, the team that we work with at FutureFit, some of them have got extensive experience in in writing and education as you'd expect and I'm, I'm learning a lot from them informally even more so actually in the last even in the last couple of years as we've looked to kind of refine what we do and how we write our courses it definitely has changed again I've I've moved from simply writing how I would write and assuming that everybody will relate to that to thinking about my my audience so always something that's always stuck with me is when you're writing um, having a an idea of your mind of who it is you're writing for as in the specific person so am i writing to john who's 45 and likes riding bikes and if I, if you've got that person in your mind while you're writing it makes it a lot lot easier so you're not trying to be again a jack of all trades trying to appeal to everybody in the words that you use and the terminology you use so that's that's been really a sort of key lesson for me and i have had to adapt it so depending on whether i'm writing a course whether i'm writing a magazine article whether i'm writing a blog post whether i'm writing a social media post everything has to change very very subtly and um, i'm by no means a, an expert at it there's, there's lots of people far better than me but it, it, I, I enjoy the process and it's, it's it's really interesting when you get into it looking at the, the subtleties of what it's all about do you write your presentations in the same way that you um, an article or is there a different process around that? I'd say the, the presentation is slightly different because they do literally have to be they obviously have to be spoken and you it's very difficult to write out a presentation and then present it in that same way because you automatically you you, you sound like you're reading it and um, even even people that are very polished presenters that learn scripts you can tell it's a script because of the way the words they use and the way they say things so I, I do I do I do generally try and write out uh, my presentations but then when I'm presenting them I don't read the script I just use my, you know, my PowerPoint slides as, as prompts and cues and make sure I've got my, my key points in, in line so that I can I can deliver it in a more more natural more natural way. Um, so yeah, definitely definitely a different process. I'm I'm a big fan of making sure people can engage with you as a as the presenter and not just listen to you repeat stuff wrote off off a, off a script. Nothing worse as well than looking at a PowerPoint screen. It's just a wall of text, yeah. and then the presenter just reads that text off the off the slide. Um, so that, uh, that's something I, yeah, a bit like uh, alongside the writing. Something I've looked into is is presenting styles and, and how it works. Uh, what or what does work what, what doesn't work and to make it effective again by no means an expert at it and uh, I'm sure it never will be but that my, my my philosophy is that you're never you're never an expert at anything really it's just it's an ongoing learning process isn't it so if we can keep moving forward and getting better at it that's uh, that's enough for me do you still get nervous before big presentations oh uh, completely I think I think you have to I, I, I used to get nervous even tutoring courses even if I had you know, 12 students you know, having having spoken to you know 100 people in the room going into a course that I know I've got these 12 students all day, sometimes two or three days, uh, and know you have to hold their attention for those two or three days, yeah, I would still get a bit uh, kind of a bit nervous. But I think that's a good thing, because as soon as you get complacent, that's when your standards start to slip, that's when you start to trip over your words, that's when you start to forget things, because you haven't prepared. Um, so yeah, but I think it's a, yeah, that's a good thing. That was going to be my next question, actually, like how important you felt it was 
um, to maintain that level of nervousness. And um, personally, I think what happened was I used to have a spectrum of nervousness depending on the size of the event. Now I just get equally um, nervous about them all. So it's <laughs> something that's unbelievable. But I think it is, you're right. It's so important to have those nerves because what if it does go wrong? Like, and be prepared for when things have gone wrong. So I don't know if you've got any experiences where a presentation has gone a little bit awry for whatever reason and then you've still been able to pull it back. I did one I did one at Elevate a couple of years ago um, down in London um, and three days before the presentation so there was due to be me and a guy from Portugal um, that were talking about um, uh, this kind of topic actually talking about standards of education for PTs and um, three days before I was told the guy from Portugal had failed to get a visa um, and so rather than having a a 15 to 20 minute slot I now had to fill best part of an hour um, um, <laughs> so I, I had my presentation ready that was and I timed it and it was about 20 minutes so I thought right what am I going to do now but as it was on, on the day we had that was the presentation we had about 100 110 people in, in the room and the number of questions we got and the number of kind of comments and the kind of the, the discussions that flow, flowed from the presentation meant that it naturally kind of extended out and even though I finished probably on about 45 minutes rather than the 55 hours that session was allocated for the the number of people queued up for questions afterwards took took us actually beyond beyond the hour so actually worked really well in the end um, but at the time, you know, I was I was thinking, how am I going to pad this out for another, you know, literally twice as long as it was as it was meant to be? And other than that, I mean, you've had I've had the classic things where you kind of the slides that you've prepared aren't the ones that they then put on the screen, or they've got an old version of, or the clicker doesn't work, and all that kind of stuff. And it's uh, you sort of have to take it and you take it in your stride. I, I've, I've always been a, perhaps I would have used the PowerPoints as a bit of a crux. So even though I don't read off them, I do use them as a, as a prompt. So I, I know there's a title on it, there's a picture on it. I know what I'm going to be talking about. If I click and nothing happens, then all of a sudden my mind goes blank and I think, well, what was next? I, I, I literally don't know what I'm supposed to be talking about next. And, and that, that does throw me. So that's, again, hence why preparation is, is really, really important to make sure that you, uh, you've you got a backup plan. <laughs> How did it feel when you got through that talk and everything had actually gone okay? It was, it was really good. I really, I, really, I really enjoyed it at the end of it because I said, because we had so many questions and because everyone stayed, okay, and that's another thing that's, that's, that's it's devastating. You'd be halfway through a talk and people start leaving. But everyone everyone stayed. So yeah, that felt, felt really good to have so many people that wanted to kind of follow up with me and, uh, and find out more about what we were talking about so if the spotlight was, was totally on me which is not normally me as a, as a I'm not not, not next, naturally an extrovert and um, so that was it was a bit alien to me but it was but it was, it was nice feeling. I think you are scheduled to talk at Elevate in 2021 if I'm not. Well yeah when I was scheduled to, to talk this year um, it was uh, last week or week before um, and we got it got postponed to October and then it's now been cancelled because the venue is currently a Nightingale Hospital for the NHS. Oh, um, so it was, uh, it was probably never going to happen. Um, so there's, we're doing kind of a future of the education partners for Elevate this year. Um, so we were due to do quite a few sessions and we're doing some online. Um, but yeah, hopefully the session I was due to do, we'll, we'll postpone it till, uh, till 2031 now. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully that's go down. So recently you've, well, I think just before lockdown, you were involved in some uh, charity work and uh, doing an awful lot of rowing. Uh, <laughs> I would just wonder if you would say a few words about what that was because of and exactly what you did, and then maybe some of the injuries that you sustained on the way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually coming up for a year now since uh, since Peaks Pedals Paddles, a bit of a mouthful. But yeah, it came about, basically it was my 40th birthday last year, um, and I wanted to celebrate it by doing something other than uh, going to the pub, something which I nobody can do or haven't been able to do for the last three months. So I wanted to do 
something a bit more unusual. I wanted to do some kind of physical uh, event, um, but I didn't want to just do run a run a 10k or kind of do a bike ride with lots of people. Because I wanted to do something a bit more unique than that. So I came up with the idea after lots of sort of toing and froing with my brother and, and a friend of mine who was also uh, celebrating his 40s last year, uh, Phil. You know, we decided to um, canoe the longest lake in England and then cycle to and climb the highest mountain in England all on the same day. Just, I don't know why we decided to do that, but it just seemed the most realistic uh, challenge that we could, we could set ourselves. So yeah, Pete's Pedals Paddles, as it was called. So it was, I believe it was an 18 kilometre lake, uh, Lake Windermere, up in the Lake District. And it was a 42 kilometre bike ride to the foot of uh, Scarfell Pike. And then a 700 and something metre high uh, climb up to the top of uh, Scarfell Pike. And so we did that, it was 28th of July last year. Um, we did it in 11 hours, 40 minutes, which we were quite chuffed with. I wanted to do it in, in under 12. Um, and it was all uh, to raise uh, funds for the brain tumour charity. My um, my cousin's little boy, Felix, um, sadly had a brain tumour last year and year before. Um, so underwent quite a few months of, um, of, of therapy to, to, to cure him. Fortunately, he's, he's, he's fine now, um, which, is, which is amazing, which, is, which was, again, sort of, validated the whole thing so the funds and the awareness that we rose for the, uh, rose for the charity um obviously shows that the effect that it can have and the benefits that it uh, that it has on people so um so yeah so that was it was a good success story all around which i'm uh, pleased to say how tough was that day the, if i'm being completely honest the day itself wasn't as tough as the training which i suppose is the right round it's supposed to be so the the hardest bit was probably the bike ride and that's mainly because i'm i'm a bit of a i'm a bit backwards when it comes to bike riding i don't use cleats and proper shoes i just have the, you know, the standard pedals and um, so i uh, i've kind of struggled a bit to keep up with the other two guys that are, that are on the challenge with me and um, but in terms of the, the rowing I, I the canoeing I, I deliberately put a lot of effort into training on the rowing machine so i i, I did a i built myself up to doing a half marathon on the rowing machine um and i Having done that, the, I had the endurance for the, for the canoe and then the, the the climb as well. I did lots and lots of cross training, loads of circuit training, loads of walking, loads of cycling. So actually, on the day, uh, it had work and I was I did ache quite a, quite a bit for the next few days. Um, but on the, whether it was adrenaline or, or what, I don't know. On the day itself, it didn't feel too too tiring. I'm pleased to say, which is which is which is good. Just goes to show what um, good preparation does. Well, no, exactly. That's 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 what it's all about. Kind of you've got to walk the walk as I sort of talk. Was it in the process of training that you managed to detach your retina it wasn't actually no did um, not i thought it was no no lots of people assume that um so i actually had two detached retinas last year which is which is unfortunate so i had one in january um, and then i had one in in november as well so yeah january is actually literally it was about the week after we'd publicly announced the challenge we'd set up our charity fundraising page um we'd told everyone what we were going to do. We had national um, press coverage lined up. So it was all guns, all guns blazing. We were all ready to go. Literally a week, a week after we did that, um, maybe even soon, maybe a couple of days, my retina decided to detach. So I had to go and have emergency surgery the next day. And then that was two weeks of nothing, can't do anything at all. Had to just rest completely. And it was the most frustrating two weeks uh, I think I've ever had. And um, so that was, but it was, it was a genetic thing in, in that it's, it wasn't anything I'd physically done. It was probably always going to happen. It just happened to happen at that particular point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was very disappointing. So that, that set the training back by a, by a couple of weeks. And then, yeah, it was, it, I was fine again until November. And then I, I was on to my next challenge after that. So I was training for the, the British Rowing Indoor Championships last December. So I'd gone from doing a, a 
11, 12 hour endurance event down to one that was hopefully going to take me about seven minutes to do. So I was stuck into the training. I started that in August, did two, three months of training. And then in November, my, uh, the other eye decided to, uh, to, <laughs> to call it quits as well. So again, I had to have emergency surgery there. And annoyingly, that, that put me out of the, uh, the rowing championships because uh, I was not only was I two weeks off of training, but obviously when I then started again, I had to build up slowly. And that only gave me uh, like two weeks before the championships. And I, I, knew, I was always touch and go as to whether or not I was going to be on on, uh, on track with my training. So unfortunately, I had to call it a day there. Do you um, think um, that indoor championship will be something that you'll have to do in future because you've said you will? Oh, well, I, I, I was planning to do it again this year. So I, I started training for that at the start of the year. Um, and I thought I'm going to give, give myself the whole year training towards it and particularly the last six months of the year. So the start of July was my deadline to give myself a full six months um, or just under six months for the, for the session, uh, for the event. Um, but of course, the gyms have all been closed. Um, so I've literally not been in the gym, not been on the row machine since, since March. So again, I've missed the boat for, the, for this year, uh, or the row machine. Anyway. Um, so yeah, and annoyingly, that's two years in a row. <laughs> that's got to be next year that, that I do it, which, which is ironic because I actually hate indoor rowing. It's one of those sports that you, once you do it, you, re- you realize why you, why you don't want to do it. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's on my list now and I've got to tick it off. So uh, I'll have to get stuck in next year. So just another year of rowing to go, unfortunately. <laughs> well, when, the, when the gyms reopen, I'll, I might get back into it. There is a vague outside. I've been doing a lot of cycling because I'm, um, I'm, doing, I'm doing another um, charity event in, in August. And I, so I have been doing lots of endurance training. So there was an outside chance that once I get back in the gym, I'll give myself a bit of a test, see where I'm at, and I might be able to pick it up again. Um, but in reality, I think it's going to be uh, another another 12 months, unfortunately. How important is charity work to you as a person? It's makes <laughs> it sound very grand. Um, um, but equally, I don't want to say it's not important. Um, it's it's I, I, the only events that I've done really for charity are when they've, they've had a sort of real personal connection to me. So as I said, my cousin's little boy had a brain tumor last year, and that's why we decided to raise money for the brain tumor charity. I was due to do the Prudential Ride London event in August um, with a 100-mile bike ride with a team of 10. Um, and that one of those 10 is my, my best friend um, whose daughter um, also had cancer uh, last year um, which, and was actually treated in the same hospital as my cousin's little boy, weirdly. Um, so um, she, she, fortunately, again, has literally last week just been given the all clear. So she's she's on the road to recovery again, which is which is great. Um, but we, we were raising money from Europe, over UK in support of her. So that was that was the incentive behind doing the ride of London. That's not not happening anymore. Um, the powers that be have decided that twenty thousand people cycling around London together is probably not uh, not consistent with uh, social distancing, uh, which is fair enough. Um, so we're not doing that. Um, but we are going to do uh, an event. We are going to try and get a, a cycle on the on the same day somehow, and um, to, to still raise those funds. So I say I, I, I enjoy training for a specific event even more so when it's got a really good cause behind it. Um, so anything I do in the future. Um, events wise i'll probably try and tie it into some kind of you know, personal personal cause that mean, means something to me i think it's, it helps with the motivation you'd, you'd think as an exercise professional i'd just love training and want to want to do it but i'm sort of sad to say that it's not the case i actually perform much better when i've got something specific to aim for yeah uh, and i tell that to all um, personal trainers that i work with you've got to have something that you're going towards because you're doing this thing as a job so there's got to be something else you're not just doing it for the love of it anymore you're around barbells all day uh, around cardiovascular machines and you tell yeah. other people to do it um, you run out of willpower to tell yourself to do it yeah. and you have something big behind you now at this stage of the podcast i like to ask people about any mentors that they want to give a shout out to or that have had 
a massive impact on their life and their experiences, basically help them go forward. Um, so, yeah, the floor is yours, my friend. So, so my, I mean, you, you said to me that yesterday kind of to think about this, and um, my, my first thought is always to go to kind of the, the, the big names that people want to kind of refer to. Um, and whilst there are people out in the industry that kind of uh, I've, I've looked up to and, and, and learned from, I actually would rather focus on the, the individual, if you like, smaller names um, that I've worked with personally, um, and names that won't necessarily, um, people won't necessarily know. Um, so my, my first mentor, if you like, was a guy called Jason Dean, um, who worked at the gym in Leeds, where it was second second big gym that I worked at um, in central Leeds. Um, so Jason Dean was the, he was like the, the lead PT, if you like. Um, he was involved in recruiting me. But he also taught me a lot about running a PT business. Um, he, he was probably the first person that um, switched me on to the idea of being uh, finding a niche. Um, again, I'm showing how old uh, I am now and how long I've been in the industry. That his niche at the time was kettlebells, believe it or not. So he was the only trainer in the gym and potentially in Leeds who was using kettlebells with his clients. So much so that he used to lock his kettlebells up with a bike lock on the gym floor so that nobody else could use them. <laughs> um, of course, these days, uh, everyone in man and his dog is, is a kettlebell expert. Um, so, as I said, so Jason was, was, was quite sort of influential for me. Um, I worked with a guy called John Richardson, um, who did, um, I'm not even sure if he's in the industry anymore actually, but he, he was, he mentored me through a, an advanced training course, uh, a functional performance course that I, that I did uh, over the course of a year. Um, and Thank you for listening to the Heavy Metal Strength Coach Podcast. 